This is another episode of Mix and Matchbox. I am Brent Feldman, and I'm here today with Kyle Pellegrino-Hartman, Partnerships Consultant from Essential Accessibility. Hi, Kyle. Hey, Brent. Hey, Colin. How you doing? Good. How are you doing? Awesome. Awesome. Excited to be here. And for the first time, I'm actually here with my business partner, Cullen Whitmore, an in-house accessibility lead. Hey, Cullen. Hi. How's it going? Uh, everything is going great. How about you? Doing good. Awesome. Well, let's jump right in. We have a lot to talk about in regards to accessibility. So um, I guess I'll start right off with the first question. How has the thinking about accessibility changed in the last five to 10 years? And how about even in the last year? I guess, Kyle, if you don't mind answering that first. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really great place to start, Brent. Like if we think historically about accessibility, right? Even, even maybe going back a little bit longer than 10 years, a lot of the kind of uh, the foundation for what digital accessibility is today kind of spun out of a regulatory environment, right? So dating all the way back to the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 here in the United States, um, the ADA in 1990, Americans with Disabilities Act, for those who aren't familiar with that acronym, and even the authoring of the first WCAG guidelines, the Web, Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, a lot of it spun out of kind of a requirements regulatory environment, right? And so in the last like five to 10 years, what we have seen is with that baseline, a couple of key things really happen. So number one is um, we have seen a lot more focus on the compliance side of this for federal procurement, right? Um, as technologies have advanced under the ADA, under Section 508 of that Rehabilitation Act, there have been more and more requirements, folks um, really establishing processes and procedures for procuring accessible technology. And specifically within the lens of um, some of that, the, the regulatory stuff is a really significant increase in civil litigation related to websites not being accessible, okay? It's important to understand that in the United States, of course, um, we don't have federal regulations for um, like true digital accessibility requirements or processes, right? So when I mentioned the ADA, we treat um, websites, mobile applications, et cetera, like places of accom uh, public accommodation, right? But ADA, of course, is a civil law, and we have seen a very big increase in the litigious side of digital accessibility, right? Folks suing businesses specifically for inaccessible websites. So there have been, in the last couple of years, a couple of really high priority or uh, um, high, highly visible cases. So the Domino's case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, right? That was something where lots and lots of unfortunate back and forth about really what was a person who was unable to order a pizza at the end of the day, right? So, you know, just for context, for those who might not know, in the last couple of years, we've seen over 5,000 fully fledged lawsuits filed 
in you know uh, locally uh, local agencies and governments and, and all that kind of stuff, but then also um, upwards of like two hundred and fifty thousand demand letters, which are often a precursor for civil litigation, right? So it's really really important that we situate it there. But at the end of the day, right? What we're talking about is in that that case I mentioned with Domino's. It's about somebody literally just trying to order a pizza, right? And that's about barriers and about a lack of equity and access to the things that folks without certain types of disabilities can't interact with in digital content, right? That's really a big piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've certainly, you know, seen this change, uh, you know, for us as we've been dealing with some of our clients, obviously, that have, uh, you know, gotten a demand letter. Uh, and, and it's really unfortunate because, um, you know, sometimes these are sites that we inherit. Uh, we'll see that they get a demand letter for them. And then, unfortunately, they're they're thrown into that circumstance where they have to reconcile that. Um, not only taking care of, you know, the, the potential lawsuit at hand, but some of the issues that actually may, you know, uh, come along with um, remediating the issues with their site as well. And so definitely, uh, I, I, I can uh, agree and certainly understand that, you know, we've seen it just as much as it's been on the increase of like, you know, there's just, there's been more cases filed. And certainly it seems like it's, uh, it's not slowing down, unfortunately, too. It, it's not, but I think also it, to tie into kind of one of those, like, I guess another key point when we're thinking about the last five to 10 years and even more recently, the impacts of the pandemic, right? And the, the move from digital being something that is a future state, but in a lot of businesses' eyes, a nice to have, something that wasn't prioritized as much, becoming all of a sudden exceptionally important, critical to doing business, but also for employers, how their employees engage with each other in a virtual environment, right? Um, this raised the bar, I think, from you need to be thinking about digital accessibility because websites are becoming more and more a place for folks to go and shop, uh, mobile apps for folks grabbing the news, grabbing updates on their sports team that they're following, whatever the case is, right? To like, you have to be awesome at digital. And if you're not, your business is going to struggle. And as part of that, if your if your websites if your digital content isn't accessible, you're excluding in the United States twenty five percent of your population like that, right? Yeah. And the other thing too, for bit from a business standpoint, um, the pandemic of course shed light on other types of inequities in the U.S. Right. So we saw lots and lots of civil unrest. Um, specifically when we're thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, beyond just like digital accessibility as a means of providing information, allowing people to shop online, order pizzas, call an Uber, like all that kind of stuff. It was a stark reminder of what that digital divide can actually look like when employees are not able to participate in equitable ways either. So one of the things that I think is like really interesting is um, Accenture and diversity in and um, AAAPD 
the American Association of People with Disabilities. Yeah, got it. So they released a report in 2018, 2019. It was a little in front of the pandemic, but um, I think the report is called Getting to Equal or Getting to Equal Access. I think it's Getting to Equal. But what that report indicated was that organizations that had a firm commitment to folks with disabilities when it came to their DEI efforts, we're, we're talking a little bit more like public level companies, right? But their shareholder return performance was like upwards of four times better than their peers who had lower or very, very poor DEI scores across the board. Wow. Right. So specifically thinking about how groups are able to really leverage persons with disabilities, creative thinking, different perspectives, understanding and exposing barriers, all that kind of stuff shapes how businesses, how groups of people interact with audiences. Right. And so like that kind of stuff is really, really, really front and center right now that hasn't gone away since the pandemic. So when you think about a Twitter standing up an entire group called Idea, right? And a big part of that is digital accessibility and equity within the workplace. That's a signal that this stuff isn't going away. Yeah. It's really cool. I, I think that's a great point to make, especially early in the conversation here, because, um, you know, essentially, you know, you want everybody to know that uh, talk about web accessibility isn't just about the lawsuits. <laughs> it's not about, you know, people, you know, potentially getting these, you know, yeah, litigious battles and stuff over, you know, what, you know, sort of things they need to do to remediate their website. It's really about enabling people to use the web like everybody else does. And I, and I definitely feel like, um, you know, as you mentioned, it can help, you know, drive business performance. It can be a great business decision. It's not just about protecting yourself legally. So I, I really appreciate you getting that out there there soon enough. Uh, and now that we don't have a lot more to talk about that, but you know, yeah, Cullen, I know obviously you and I together kind of see these things, but you know, from your Absolutely. perspective, yeah. How has it kind of changed? Yeah. One of the things that I'm really interested in seeing, um, you know, at Matchbox, we've been a digital agency for almost 16 years now. And with that digital background, that web background, accessibility became a natural progression for our yeah. agency. And um, we work with other uh, other vendors as well to help um, improve accessibility, um, other agencies, companies. And it's, you know, we've really been trying to take a stance of education. And, and that's, um, I think that there's a lot of knee-jerk reaction right now because of the demand letters. And it feels very, um, feels very ambulance chasey. Uh, a little bit, which is very unfortunate because I think it is distracting from the true reason that people should care about accessibility. It's not about, oh, I got to do this because I'm going to get sued. It's because, no, we want to make it more accessible for everyone. And um, that's a really important piece. Um, and I know that that's something that's really, that's really what, as Matchbox got Brent and I to dig in a lot more to accessibility really to start really focusing on it and actually making it an important part of what we as a company do and a part of our mission um you know kyle tell me a little bit about how did you get into the accessibility world 
Yeah, so uh, Colin, that's a great point. And, and before I dive in, I, I wanted to highlight one thing that I thought you said that was really interesting and in, um, even thinking about kind of the future of accessibility too, right? One of the things that's exciting for me, and, and keep in mind, right, I work at Essentialist Accessibility. We focus on program level accessibility. Uh, we'll get into a little bit of that later. But what has become really exciting is that um, outside of some of the groups that we'll talk about later, we are seeing accessibility tackled by accessibility vendors in really, really unique and interesting ways, right? We see groups that are cropping up that are really heavily focused on um, the process of making design comps accessible, focusing on including persons with disabilities in user research, right, in user testing, um, thinking about how we go in and annotate a wireframe. Like we see groups really focusing on that. We see other vendors essential as, as part of that, right? really focusing on how do we maximize the best that technology offers to maintain, especially in an agency environment, right? Maintain really tight project timelines, development velocity, and include accessibility as part of that, right? So we're seeing the really truly the top accessibility vendors, we call it shift left, right? And what that means is, we move from this kind of find and fix bugs cycle to how do we prevent accessibility issues from ever making their way into the code, right? And that process is unbelievably exciting. And there's lots and lots of different strategies for how you go about doing that. It can be browser extensions, APIs, command line, all this fun stuff. But at the end of the day, you're seeing some of these really top accessibility vendors say our customers need faster accessibility they they acknowledge they need it they want it faster and that's like really cool when the demand for that kind of stuff is increased so much that the top accessibility vendors are focusing on it right that's just that's just like definitely so cool. oh i i think it's so cool i agree i'm so stoked about it but um Oh, and just, you know, really quick, just to add on to that, that, you know, you never want it to be the primary reason, but making that shift to doing it earlier really definitely means that, you know, people can get derived cost savings out of it. You know, they can get SEO benefits from it. Like there's all these benefits from doing it. You should be doing it definitely for the, you know, pure intent of obviously helping your audience, you know, helping the web, you know, be more accessible, but at the same time, like know that it, it pays dividends, you know, doing this kind of thinking and, and thinking about it as you said, earlier in the process. But anyway, uh, I'm sorry I didn't mean to jump in on you, no, you know, give no, me a background. That's great. I we're gonna probably talk over each other like 47 times because I'm I'm super excited about talking about this. But if you think about it though, right, like that that velocity piece, right? The shift left piece is about organizations saying we have to be more mindful of a broader audience reach. And if we want to be successful, we have to consider more people and a broader range of people and what their needs are, what their goals are, understand what their challenges are, all that stuff. Yes, there's financial benefit to that. Lots of reports, lots of data out there about it. But at the end of the day, the true message is, again, about people, right? Colin, you asked me how I got into this space. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And it's it's funny. Um, 
So our manager of solutions engineering here at Essential is my best friend since childhood, guy guy by the name of Noah Mashney, who um, got into the space about five years ago. And after a couple years at a previous vendor, recruited me to go work there, right? And so a little background about myself, um, I'm a person that studied education. Um, I had went through a number of courses, uh, taught a number of lecture or uh, sessions, classes, et cetera, with students with disabilities, right? 504 plans, um, different accommodation needs, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I'll tell you that just very directly, my training did not prepare me for that, right? So um, that was something I had to learn along the way, and that was challenging. Um, I'm also a person who has two disabilities myself. So when I talk about digital accessibility, I kind of break those two disabilities out to kind of talk about how they impact me today. Um, one of them is type 1 diabetes. And so type 1 diabetes from a like interacting with web content today does not impact me really, unless my blood sugar is really low or really high. And that's that's not, there's no assistive technology that supports that, right? Um, but, you know, folks with diabetes are the leading cause of new cases of vision loss and total loss of vision in the United States, right? So a big part of my effort in evangelizing, caring about accessibility, all that is selfishly motivated from a prevention standpoint, right? The other disability, uh, I am neurodivergent, did not know that until I was 32 years old. And so when I talk about accessibility with marketers, with content creators, with technical writers, a lot of that stuff, what I talk about are challenges that I think probably most people, regardless of ability status, have experienced where they go onto a website and, hey, I bought some pants online and those things sure are tighter than I was hoping. And either I, I need to cut off the pizza or whatever, but I need to return those. And the process of figuring out how to return a pair of pants becomes a 30 minute task. And you're like, why is this feeling so hard, right? It's about how content is organized and structured and how we leverage things like lists to provide clear and concise instructions on how to execute a task, right? So those types of things, especially when you think about having to navigate the healthcare industry as often as I do, can present a lot of frustrations over time, right? So, so that piece also really informs how I speak to a non-technical audience and beyond even some of those compliance requirements about the benefits of accessibility, right? When we think about a neurodivergent user who's trying to follow a set of instructions, if those are not clear, guess what? They're probably not clear for a whole lot of other people too that exist outside of the, uh, a, a disability status or something like that, right? So, um, you know, Noah brought me into the space. Um, Late uh, last year, we both uh, moved over to Essential Accessibility, uh, and we've been here ever since, really rocking and rolling. So that's awesome. That's yeah. really cool, and it's great. It's great to know your background too, and know that, like, obviously, you're bringing that into the fold. 
in how you look at accessibility issues and and you know and just like you mentioned like trying to understand it from a point of like you know not everybody sees content the same way and uh and if you see content that's disorganized imagine what that does to just you know the you know in anybody you know um so yeah i that's it is that's actually incredibly important actually now i'm kind of reflecting and may maybe think about looking more into neurodivergence i actually that's that's actually very new information to me. I will I will tell you that um, when I'm thinking about my kind of journey in digital accessibility, right, and and what it means to me, and and the kind of politics involved, I believe accessibility is political, right? Um, it's defining what we care about and who we care about, how broad that spectrum of folks we care about really is, all that kind of stuff. But when we talk, when I talk to people about my experiences and they ask me about diabetes, about ADHD, about neurodivergence, any of that kind of stuff, I talk specifically about the neurodivergence piece right now impacting my experience more. And guess what? I lived 32 years of my life without knowing that, right? So it's not just about like web content. It's also, guess what? I also struggled in work sometimes with um, not the big complicated projects, but the little daily tasks, things you have to do to check up on X, Y, Z that are the kind of like things most folks find easy to just kind of knock out and do, right? I struggled with that a lot until I learned about this. So guess what? My uh, attitudes as an employee go up, right? My ability to execute the small menial stuff consistently went up that stuff that benefited my employers as well definitely you know? when you know what's going on it it, it yeah. can help yeah that that's really cool and i really appreciate you sharing it um i know we have so much stuff to get through and hopefully we can uh, jump right into the next big question which i know kyle you know you'll probably uh you know have have something to speak on here because obviously it affects you know the world of accessibility greatly but um you know what does that new federal judgment around accessibility mean for the average person and uh you know for maybe anybody that doesn't know there was recently you know kind of federal judgment around uh accessibility issues there had been an act that was in california that i think you know was kind of the the primary center point of a lot of the legal activity but you know, if you can give uh, an outlay of that kind of situation, uh, that would be that would be wonderful. Yeah. So it's important, I think, to to kind of understand if you're new to the space, right, that without regulation like Canada has or like Europe has right now, that folks in in the spot of receiving something like a demand letter or who are new to accessibility etc don't understand number one that there's this web content accessibility guidelines out there that has been a standard for testing web accessibility for a long period of time and content too not just web pdf and um, video and all sorts of stuff right but uh, mobile apps to an extent but um, with there not being specific kinds of public or uh, uh, private sector regulations, court judgments can change. The DOJ's stance can change, Department of Justice, if you're not familiar with that acronym, right? 
So what folks who are in the space have really expected was that the Biden administration was going to be firmer about digital accessibility. And this recent statement by the DOJ does just that, right? It does not establish new regulations, but it really, really does a couple key things. It codifies that digital accessibility absolutely applies to the ADA without question, right? So there is no wiggle room to really interpret. Well, the ADA was set up to kind of talk about places of public accommodation in the physical space, right? Um, this is much more about it's saying that digital accessibility absolutely falls into that. There is not wiggle room like there has been in the past. The second piece that's really critical, if we're thinking about um, what WCAG really does, WCAG is a guideline and you meet those guidelines. It's like a rubric, right? When you check all those WCAG boxes, you are compliant. Doesn't mean it's usable. That's a whole nother question, but it means you're compliant, right? And so by, by tying WCAG specifically in as like the rubric, there is not wiggle room anymore to interpret WCAG as something that's suggestive only, right? Courts will be told to rule based on conformance with WCAG if there is a, a, you know litigation, any of that kind of stuff, right? So all of the tooling and testing methodologies that good accessibility vendors provide against those WCAG standards, right? That is how you achieve accessibility from a compliance standpoint. Usability is a whole nother question, but DOJ is really firming up that this is the standard that we expect organizations to meet. That's yeah. And it's nice to have that clarity really in a way, because uh, I think before and Cullen, I'm sure you can attest to this, but, you know, obviously we had to, to um, kind of pitch everything as being like, well, this is what we think you should do, you know, based on what we have available to us. And I think WCAG was for the most part, you know, assumed as being kind of like, you know, the what you should be going towards, but at the same time, actually having it, you know, codified, as you mentioned, is helpful so that it, uh, it we don't have that mystery anymore. Yeah, I seriously, I'd love to hear a little bit from from your perspectives too, right? Like I, the more and more agencies of all sizes that I interact with, right? One of the really interesting trends that I'm kind of seeing is that a lot of like RFPs and contracts that are being put out by companies looking for an agency are putting like accessibility and SEO into an RFP, right? And there's no standard. There's no who's going to evaluate, like who's going to be the, the objective evaluator of this? Um, does this need to be an the entire website? Is it templatized? Like all that kind of stuff. I would love to hear specifically how you think it impacts your work at the agency level. Because I work for a vendor, right? Like I'm in this like every single day talking to a bunch of different groups that hear all this stuff from customers. I'd love to hear what you hear. I think we end up asking a lot of questions. <laughs> because... Tell me about that. Yeah. <laughs> so really what it does is it opens up um, the door. I think the most probably the most common thing that we see is the site should be accessible. And so then it really gets us into the definition of like, what is accessible? Yeah. You know, are you, um, you know, a, a big one that we, we talk with um, 
a lot of agencies and we want to, or not agencies, I'm sorry, uh, organizations, we want to find out, are they receiving federal funding? Because, you know, then we get from WCAG to 508 yeah. and, and then it's a whole nother world. And so um, there's a lot of education uh, that we, we have to look at. And um, 508, that section 508, anything that is a government website, government entity uh, site, or um, an organization that is uh, receiving funding partnered with um, a government organization, they are required to meet 508 compliance, which is like WCAG 2.1 plus. So, um, so there's a, a, a lot of things that we're looking at from that standpoint. And um, I think one of the challenges that we run into when we are actually speaking with a, a potential customer about accessibility is education around the cost associated with truly making um, an entire site or an entire application fully accessible, um, meeting compliance. Uh, and a lot of that comes back to kind of like you said, it's, you know, there's things we can do to, you know, to meet compliance, but it may not be as usable. Um, and so it, it's an incredible balance that, um, that Brent and the UX team and the UI team really have to kind of focus on as we're carrying it through into development. Um, I mentioned we ask a lot of questions. One of the things that we we really get into are, um, especially if there's an existing brand and we can immediately see that the brand colors are not accessible. Um, they don't have enough high contrast ratios. Um, we talk about that. We talk about what is driving the um, need for accessibility. We found out in some uh, instances, it's actually litigation. It's, well, you know, we heard somebody got a demand letter. We don't want, you know, we don't want to be sued. And it, it's, you know, it kind of comes back to that, uh, that opportunity for us to educate about like, well, if you focus this way, there, you know, it's like we can solve a business need of, you know, you don't want to be sued and, and we can assist with that. Uh, there's other tools. Uh, I know we're going to talk about some a little bit later that, are, you know, you can put a plug in on help kind of with some of those things, but that doesn't help the human side of it, the usability side of the lot. And so there's a lot of education that we give about that from the point that our stance is we believe everyone from the ground up should try to implement accessibility um, natively, native accessibility. Um, and there's so many benefits of it. It's uh, at All Things Open. It's an open source digital conference. Um, a few years ago, one of the best speeches I heard about accessibility was um, a person was talking about uh, when you're on a sidewalk and there's the cutouts. Um, you know, it's like that that wasn't just built for you know, a person that was having to use a, a cane. It's for somebody that's pushing a stroller. That's somebody that, um, you know, maybe they're a little older, they're scooting their feet, you know, something along those lines. And it, it's like, we want to do that same thing with the web. It's like, yeah, yeah. of course, nobody wants to be sued. <laughs> you know, but yeah, that, yeah, yeah, for sure. That's a given. You know, that, that's kind of a, a statement, but you know, it's really, we want to, we want to get them excited about, making their site accessible for everyone as well. Yeah. And, and that's the, you know, we're excited about it. It's the, like, you know, you're going to help it, your SEO. Ethos. 
you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, really, it's part of our, you know, just how we think about sites now. And I agree. I totally agree with like, you know, yeah. Calling all the points about like, you know, just kind of educating, but really kind of, yeah, exactly. Getting people excited about it. Cause it, it's not, um, it's not just for, yeah, issuing lawsuits. It's for hopefully really just making the web better. Yeah. If I can, if I can jump in really quickly, I love that example, Colin, because um, some of the, uh, uh, the accessibility, I'll call them activists that I follow on Twitter, for example, there was a post recently showcasing a curb cut and right in front of the curb cut on the street was um, one of the, uh, the things that goes uh, above a sewer, right? Your drainage, your drain thing, right? And so like the, the drain thing that's right in front of that curb cut on the street is like really, really a great example too of, hey, that's technically compliant, but all those like the, you know, a stroller wheel is going to get caught in there. A wheelchair wheel can get caught in there. Even um, somebody's um, a cane they might be using to assist their walking for whatever reason um, could get caught in there. Guess what? Yeah, you're compliant, but it's not usable. Right. So you want to be able to think about these things that that are these nuggets that make a site compliant also in the context of use. Right. Otherwise, it's all for naught, you know, so it, uh, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, I definitely I want to touch on the fact that Colin, I think you mentioned and I think it's, uh, you know, really a fair point and a good thing to bring up so that we're kind of educating, you know, maybe the audience in a way or just bringing to light, you know, the difference between um, what it's like to potentially uh, use a plugin um, uh, or actually, as you mentioned, natively kind of solve for accessibility issues. So, um, I guess really that, that does, um, come down to, yeah, what is the difference? And I know, yeah, Colin, I'm sure there's probably things that we can say and Kyle, you know, I'm sure you probably have points on your side too, but yeah, uh, it really a good point to jump in and hopefully demystify that. Yeah. Um, it's really tough for me to think about overlay tech because, Overlay tech, it, it, it doesn't work, right? The way that overlay tech operates versus how it's marketed is an extremely different thing, okay? It is marketed as, first and foremost, a compliance solve, a risk mitigation tool, right? 100% compliance from day one. Read the fine print. That's all I'm going to say, right? But functionally, it does not operate as anything other than its own limited assistive technology, right? So, so for example, if I am a non-sighted user and I leverage on my Mac the voiceover screen reader to navigate websites, that is my choice of assistive technology to use. And when I go to a website, that is leveraging one of these, right? Number one, the things that the overlay claims to do automatically, it does not do, right? So if I don't want to use that, I want to continue using my own assistive technology, that website does not have our native accessibility solve, right? So therefore, all the things that I as a screen reader use and need from a website to be able to contextualize where I am on a page, to navigate that page in a linear way, 
but somebody who's a sighted user like Raging and Mouse won't. I don't get any of those benefits because the website has not been made accessible, right? I am then forcing an assistive technology onto somebody, right? The second piece is if we think about the compliance solve, right? There are a number of high profile public lawsuits happening with large organizations that wanted to take the overlay route. Go research overlay lawsuits on Google. That's all I'm gonna say about that, right? It is not an effective risk mitigation strategy, okay? The third piece, and I think this is really, really important for all of the designers, developers, content writers, anybody out there that's contributing to digital content that gets consumed, when your organization chooses an overlay, they say, we don't care about upskilling you. We don't care about you gaining more insight into how different users navigate and experience the web or mobile technologies or any of that kind of stuff, right? We don't get to make informed decisions about what is that curb cut? What is that curb cut, that digital curb cut? What does that look like in practice? How do we think about um, a main navigation menu through the lens of somebody leveraging keyboard only access or leveraging a screen reader. Guess what? That whole that whole example of content that we were talking about earlier that I said like lists, instructions, Overlay doesn't solve any of that, right? So all those things that you learn about accessibility that inform folks getting better at their all their crafts that they're already performing, you don't get you don't get to do that. Yeah, we, we have had uh, several in-depth conversations internally about overlay tools. Um, I'm very much in your camp that uh, where I've also seen, you know, some overlay tools. They um, they introduce new challenges. And um, I think as a, a company, we have to balance uh, a lot of things because there are some times that we have a client coming to us that... Um, Maybe they are receiving a demand letter and they know that they have an issue um, and they are looking for compliance. And while I disagree, <laughs> there are things that overlay tools, as you said, you know, there's there's lawsuits out there associated with overlay tools. So it's not a it's not a guarantee and read the fine print on those things. Um, you know, I would much rather see somebody go native with it. Um, and it's just there's so many more benefits that, you know, you're you're improving your um, you're improving just hierarchy on the page, your semantic markup. Um, all of these things are actually also improving your organic uh, search engine optimization. And like it's when you go an overlay route, you just got like you just ignored all that. And so um I understand that it can be cost prohibitive, but it's something that, you know, as a, a company, we really do try to make it affordable to, yeah. you know, break it over time to think about anything, the elements from the start, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. anything we can get them to, um, to do for immediately. And I think, you know, that's a really good point, Brent. It's, um, it is so much easier to introduce accessibility from the beginning than it is to retrofit accessibility. Yep. Yep. And, 
um, you had mentioned uh, tools that are happening, like in the build pipelines and things like that. That's the stuff where I get like super excited, you know, yeah. Cypress in there, having some automated testing, you know, um, you know, we've got GitLab running pipelines with stuff. It's um, yeah, as you can see, I'm like all excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but, but Colin, your point, right? Like one of my old mentors uh, at the previous organization that I uh, worked would always talk about retrofitting accessibility is like putting blueberries into blueberry muffins after you've already baked them, right? It doesn't even make sense. I mean, you have to do it sometimes, but like you want the blueberries in there when it goes into the oven, you know, and being able to leverage whether you're a freelance developer, right? Forget for a minute, like test automation and, and all the different ways that you can do awesome stuff with accessibility nowadays even leveraging an open source browser extension and learning a little bit about how to do some basic keyboard testing and some basic screen reader testing. I have a master's in English and I learned how to do that. I bet that any freelance developer that's listening into this call can learn how to do some of that, right? And like that kind of stuff, just from a technology standpoint, you're absolutely right. And then we get into the whole like pipeline stuff and that's just, you know, we can geek out all day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that we see um, most often is color contrast issues. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's an interesting one because, you know, it kind of borders not just digital accessibility because it can actually carry over into print media and, and yeah. you know, colors that you're seeing. It's, um, I think, one of the, one of the most common ones that really gets me is yellow on yellow text on a white background um and things like that so like really losing high visibility um and so i think that you know it, that's a thing that i look at as um like how can we you know talking about the freelance developer the person that started yeah. it's like that's an entry point just mm -hmm. look at your color contrast. You know, Google actually, if you're using Chrome, has uh, they're building tools into the inspector to where you can actually start seeing this. Um, our team uh, internally, we use Figma. Um, yeah. And so they, and I know Sketch has tools as well to where you can actually see color contrast and understand like I'm laying this over this background. What's the, you know, the contrast on it and what's my target? And, um, and I think that's also kind of where it feeds back into WCAG and understanding, um, you know, currently we're at 2.1, uh, has different guidelines, kind of sets it there. Um, we uh, we try to target 2A um, for that's that's our our go-to. But, um, you know, they've got the guidelines. And as a new user, you can kind of sit there and look and say, um, the Google tool, it'll show you like a, if I remember, it's like a green, uh, it's green when you meet it and it's red when you don't. And it's like A, 2A, 3A, which are the different levels inside WCAG. Um, so I, I think that's a great spot to start. Um, I, I tell people, turn on your um, uh, on your iPhone. Just, you know, turn on narrator and just hear it. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah like yeah. you want to immediately find out how inaccessible things are. Like... You know the the operating system on iPhones incredible for for accessibility, but you start browsing different websites in Safari, you're in for a rude awakening. <laughs> like, yeah. try, try to get where you're going. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, talking about like the, a freelancer that's maybe new or interested in accessibility, right? Um, first off, I, I happen to think that um, the Mozilla documentation around semantic HTML is outstanding, right? So if you if you are building websites and not you know using kind of like drag and drop templates and you have like code level access, that's a fantastic resource. Leveraging Lighthouse, which is in, already built into Chrome, right? Or any of the number of free browser extensions to do single page tests. That is a great way to get started. And when you have questions, right? First off, Google them. Second off, don't try to fix everything all at once. Buddy of mine, Mark Stedman, outstanding accessibility development lead, right? Um, speaks at conferences all the time, huge mentor of mine. He talks about 10 minutes a day, right? If you devote 10 minutes a day to learning a little bit, what does it mean that, um, what does this name role value success criteria mean? Oh, it means when a screen reader user comes across an element that the role's not identified, they don't know what happens when they hit enter. Oh, that's probably something that they would want to know, right? Cool. Okay. Hey, wh what does it mean to test for keyboard operability? What's a keyboard trap? How do I learn how to test with a keyboard? Pop that question into Google and there's going to be user forums, great resources, all that stuff. Knowledge is out there, but it's very decentralized in a lot of ways. Don't give up. Ten minutes a day. I I totally agree. I, I feel like it's it you know just a little bit devoted to this is good. And like if you you know if I was going to tell anybody just jumping into it, don't get overwhelmed. Uh, I I know it's very easy to as you kind of like see all the uh, the reports. If you do uh, you know a deep dive or a wave scan and stuff, and you're like, oh my god, look at all the things that are you know wrong on my site that I've got to fix. But honestly, I I, I tend to agree with that sentiment. Um, you know, of just kind of diving in a little bit at a time. I feel like, you know, that can help get you to a new place. This kind of leads right into another question too, as you guys were, you know, talking about, you know, some of the gaps, obviously that, you know, we see on sites, but, you know, what do you see as being some of like, you know, the biggest gaps on websites, accessibility issues wise that, you know, may be easy to fix. And I know that's loaded in a way, yeah. um, you know, because obviously, you know, the, the range of issues are, are, are vast. But, you know, are, are, are there things that you, you know, feel like you see in either scans, automated or manual ones that, you know, people just tend to overlook commonly? Yeah, um, I'll give a short answer here. And I'd love to hear from Cullen, too. Um, if you look at some of the reports that the large, really reputable accessibility vendors have put together, right? There are a couple of key things, right? Color contrast is always an issue. And what happens when you have um, color contrast issues that are kind of baked into your brand guidelines is that instead of the instance of that being just about like company logo that folks might be really, really hesitant to change, what happens is that spills over into the use of text into buttons and focus indicators and all that kind of stuff. So trying to, I think, parse color contrast issues as it relates to like a logo 
from how a brand's colors might be able to be leveraged for individual elements on an organization's like homepage as an example is a really great way to break that distinction and say, hey, if we can redesign this button to leverage this color and this color instead, we are much more likely to have that be a global fix across the entire website where this element is used. And now you're moving from not just one issue being resolved, but a whole bunch of them, right? Another example that I go to a lot, and this is a little bit more common in like the e-com space, right? But on a homepage, when you have the huge, you know, main nav menu, all that kind of stuff, right? In e-com, there's this kind of balance that you have to strike between understanding that when a person visits a website, the faster they can get to a product description page, the faster they can buy something. And those conversion rates are really important for folks, especially in the agency space, right? But it's also really important that we think about, in that case, how you optimize keyboard navigation so that folks don't have to sift through, I don't know, 75 different tab stops for all these different links just to get to either main navigation, like the homepage content, all that stuff, or into like account login or your search field or something like that. So that's actually been something like looking at the header on a homepage and that's across you know, all your different pages is a really great place to knock out a ton of stuff. Buttons, links, keyboard nav, menus, list, like all this different stuff right there oh man you can go to town for a while that's so legit oh my gosh like a uh, tab stops on like a mega nav uh and i think we saw like every single like you know subset of a mega nav in the in the tab index and you're just like oh my god you know like nobody will ever get to any of the information on a page so so what we're talking about there if you're new to the space right is when you're using keyboard only nav screen reader user otherwise it is a much more linear experience to navigate through a website, right? So optimizing that might mean something like a skip to main content link at the top of the page that's only triggered when a keyboard's leveraged, right? It might mean, how do we organize these uh, 75 different tab stops in a logical way so that folks can you know, cycle through the main stuff and then enter into submenus more effectively as a keyboard user, as opposed to just every single one of those in order, you know? So that's like, but that's the usability consideration as much as it is a, an accessibility one. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, so I've got five. I'm sorry. I'm going to, I'm overachiever here. Uh, <laughs> the, um, you, you definitely nailed it with the, with the skip nav. We call it a skip nav, um, you know, yeah. skip the main content. Um, and as you said, you know, the first tab on the page, it allows you to skip down to the main. Um, and so, um, which is kind of feeds into something that, uh, that we see it's landmarks, understanding mm -hmm. landmarks. I highly recommend looking in, into this. Um, Moz, as you had mentioned earlier, just has a great resource about semantically understanding the HTML. Um, you know, landmarks within landmarks. Um, it's a really common thing that if you're using um, something, say, like Axe or 
um, you know, an, another testing tool like that. There's um, Sort Site is another tool that we've used. You will see a lot of things pop for landmarks, mm. uh, incorrect use of landmarks. Um, one of my pet peeves is when I go to a website and the focus outline has been turned off because somebody thinks it's ugly and yeah. it's like, well, so now I can tab through your website, but I have no idea what I have activated because I have no focus outline. Um, and so uh, focus outline, that's typically a border that goes around a button, a, a link, things like that, just so you know where you are on the page. Um, those can be styled. You can you make it look good. Can I can I jump in on this? Because I love I love I can talk about this topic for like hours. But um specifically, I think folks that are in the um what I'll say like more progressive like design kind of focus areas, right? Will specifically do really neat and creative compliant focus indicators Absolutely. on cover, but they don't they don't translate that to keyboard. Right. And that's that's part of that communication between design and dev. But I actually um, showcase that quite a bit with some of my partners and just saying like, hey, this is happening when I do this with a mouse and this looks awesome. Right. Got to talk to that design and dev team to figure out how that happens from a keyboard perspective. But you're absolutely right that that's something that a lot of folks turn off because of the look of it. And it's like, OK, well go make a cooler looking one, man. Like, let's do it. You know, yeah, don't, <laughs> don't just hide it. So, um, so another one that I see happen quite a bit is actually people removing the underline from links in uh, content blocks. Um, I do agree that sometimes it looks better. You can do different things with different colors, but it is less accessible. It is less usable. Um, when you have a large block of content together, being able to see an underline in the middle of that really helps to highlight a link. Um, and so that's a really quick win a, a lot of times. That's not going to be one that you're going to get a hit of like, oh my gosh, this is a critical fix. You know, that's a, yeah. but it is a usability thing. Yeah, that's a great um, having read more 30 times on a page that's a <laughs> that's another one very very repetitive buttons can, can we talk can we talk about that for a second go for it so so read more if it is programmatically associated with something that's non-visible right and it's read more visually but what is read aloud to a screen reader is a much clearer description right and if that read more button is situated within appropriate context is totally fine. But to your point, folks aren't thinking like that very often. Not, not at all. One of my favorite tricks with that is to actually, um, so have read more and then, and just like a, uh, display none span or something along those lines, you know, looking at it from that standpoint, you can have read more. And then in that display, none it's about, and then you just reiterate the title. And so now the person knows what that read more button is about. Otherwise, as they go down the page, they just hear read more, read more, read more, read more, you know, as they tab. And it's like, okay. 
Yeah. I'll, I'll put S my SEO hat on here for a second and I'll also say just like, is read more the best you could do? Is, you know, like think about just a descriptive link, uh, you know, think about a descriptive button. Honestly, I feel like, you know, read more is one of those things. You're like, nah, I'll just drop this in here. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll say descriptive stuff is always helpful on that end too. So in my, my last one, this is, uh, I think I'm at five. I don't know. I, I stopped. But anyway, the, uh, my last one here is, and this is also huge for SEO, is semantic hierarchy with header tags. Um, so often we see H tags are used as design elements, not as hierarchy. Preach. Um, <laughs> like in our, in our themes, when the way that we build, we strip all styles from H tags and we allow them to be, um, developed or um, the styles associated with them based off classes. Um, so I can have an H2 that looks five different ways throughout the site. Um, it And I'm not like, oh, well, I want this big text and I want it to be this font. So I have to use an H2 that came after my H5 and my H3 because then you end up with things out of order. And the person that's using a screen reader, their screen readers like, what is I does not compute <laughs> kind of thing because it's not in order and they can't understand hierarchy. Take that not only from a screen reader and associate it with SEO. You just improved how Google can understand what your page is saying in hierarchical structure. Quick follow-up question about that, Colin. Let's <laughs> say instead of being a, a freelance developer, instead you're somebody who's working on like a content marketing team. And here's that piece of advice, but it's like, hey, I'm not living in the code. I understand what you're saying about styling and our use of headers, but I'm just like populating a template. What do I need to do to check to make sure that that's okay? So there's a couple things that uh, I, I think, and it also kind of depends on how the existing site is, is set up. So let's, let's take WordPress, for example, one of the largest CMSs that's out there. Um, a lot of times, uh, so we build custom themes designed for our clients. There are a lot of people that will get an off-the-shelf um, theme and that they are then applying uh, to their site. Um, if they do not have access to the code, um, one of the first things to test is, number one, how does it output? We love building a style guide page. Go to a page, put an H1, H2, H3, and we even title them header one, header two, header three, and apply those um, those styles or the uh, tags to it. Look at it on the front end. How does it output? How is it styled? If it doesn't, if it doesn't have custom styles associated with it, you're golden because then you can actually start styling things. And a lot of times it'll just take browser hierarchy and font size. Um, however, if they are styled, I highly recommend that you speak with your developer, um, because what ends up happening from a design standpoint to make it semantic, you are actually, you're actually kind of messing up the look of the site <laughs> because somebody said, oh, well, this H2 is always going to look this way instead of saying, an H2 can have this class that can look any of those kinds of ways. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. I answered that question. I don't 
that's definitely fair like oh we want this like little bitty text up at the top and we have a little description but that is actually the h3 and then oh we want this big text a little bit lower down the page that's the h1 automatically you're already you're already messed up there so yeah i i definitely i think it, it's certainly it's correctable potentially but you know yeah uh recognizing it is the biggest thing and and certainly it has seo benefits too shameless plug if you have a question give me a call let me know yeah <laughs> Love it. well cool uh all right well moving on here uh i i think this is a really big one because obviously um accessibility statements kind of have been um used across the web now um for people kind of pledging quote unquote their commitment um to um making their site more accessible and I guess a big question, you know, just for anybody who has a website out there, you know, should everybody have an accessibility statement on their website? Yeah, this is, um, I don't want to get lost in the importance here of an accessibility statement and what that signals, right? In a lot of cases, an accessibility statement signals much more than just like risk mitigation type stuff. Right. So, yes, legal personas will want accessibility statements up, especially if there's ever been some sort of demand letter or lawsuit kind of thing there. But if you're thinking about it truly from even how like millennials and Gen Z shop, right, accessibility statements are something that signals, hey, we're at least saying we care about persons with disabilities and their experience on the web. It is also a signal to prospective um, people that are looking for jobs to come apply to your company, right? Do they have a public commitment to um, something that impacts my day-to-day -day life, right? So there are benefits to them. There's also a lot of variance in accessibility statements, right? So some organizations who have very large digital footprints outside of web and mobile might include things like kiosks, baggage, uh, transportation, lots and lots of things related to um, accommodations for or affordances for folks with disabilities, right? Um, there are some organizations that wanna have a really firm digital accessibility commitment which is maybe signaling um, the standard that they're testing against, or that by such and such date or time frame we expect to be compliant with 2.1 or something like that, right? Um, there's lots and lots of variance there, but this is really important. <laughs> Public statements are very different than action, right? So if an organization is is publicly saying one thing but not following up on that commitment that's a challenge number two if you haven't yet started but you're looking into digital accessibility right putting up a statement like that might not be the best first step for your organization so so what i like to say when folks ask about that is Accessibility statements are just like, well, not just like, they are similar to other DNI types of statements, right? There's a lot that goes into what content teams want to say about it, 
what legal teams want to say about it, what leadership does or doesn't want to say about it, all that kind of stuff. Those are business decisions. Whether or not, not your site, your customer experience, your even like employee support, whether or not that's accessible is not determined by an accessibility statement, right? But we also do see a lot, a lot of large brands that are really, really signaling to the public that digital accessibility is a core component and they want to put that out there publicly for a variety of reasons, okay? Getting back to that whole thing we talked about with the uh, getting to equal report, right? If there's data out there from leading disability rights organizations and a group as large and as impactful as Accenture is, that organizations who are publicly traded have 4X shareholder returns when there's a strong DNI commitment, there can be money associated with that. But should, that's up to that. That's not up for me to decide. Cool. I, I think that's definitely it's fair um, and and really important for people to think about when they put that kind of statement out there. You know, is it a real commitment or are you putting it up there to, you know, again, try to issue lawsuits? And yeah. I think that is something that, uh, you know, people really need to think about before, you know, just going ahead and putting something up patently. Yeah, Colin. I, I think that is a good uh, a good point. And, um, I, you know, candidly, I will say that, you know, we tell people that they should have an accessibility statement. Now, that statement doesn't mean that you have to say, we are dedicated to this. We are, you know, all of the, all of the things <laughs> that, you know, that all the different departments want to have in this to, you know, to, to legally cover themselves. But I think that to me, the thing that's important about it is I'm acknowledging the fact that I have accessibility issues on my website and I know that. And I'm giving you a way to contact me so that I can assist you. And those are the, to me, those are the things that I think should be in an accessibility statement that isn't necessarily more of a public, this is our commitment to something. It's more of a, we understand we have this problem. If you need assistance, please contact us. It's a, uh, it's a mechanism for feedback that can be really, really valuable to folks. I agree Absolutely. with that. That's a really good point. That's, um, so just for a little context, as part of, uh, for folks who are not familiar with essential accessibility, accessibility statements are one of the components of our overall program, right? And not every organization wants to take advantage of that, but Colin, I think you're absolutely correct that really strong accessibility statements are often that place where there can be feedback or a support mechanism that can be really critical for a user's experience, right? That's a really good distinction. Cool. Well, that's, that's great. And actually, um, now that you, you know, kind of mentioned as part of like, you know, the program, uh, you know, and definitely an, an essential accessibility in general, um, you know, not, not just from the company standpoint, but from maybe your own personally, what does web accessibility mean to you? Yeah. Um, so, so I want to talk about it, um, both from a kind of company perspective and then from a personal perspective about why I came here. Right. So if you're unfamiliar with essential accessibility, 
what we have taken um, from kind of looking at the landscape and understanding how um, like a traditional accessibility consultant, a business model that's kind of focused on project-based work, right? Kind of similar to how some, some agencies operate where there might not be like a maintenance model, all that kind of stuff. When we tack, when, when, when those folks tackle accessibility at a project level, right? That could be challenging for organizations not to achieve accessibility, but to maintain it, right? So when we're talking about things like um, manual evaluations, right? All, like historically, folks have gone in and done manual evaluations of websites, delivered a report, and then anything after that, whether it's support, navigating the remediation process, um, training folks how to how to perform keyboard to all that kind of stuff is all separate expenses after the fact, right? So there are a bevy of services there, right? EA has developed this uh, sort of model called accessibility as a service. And it's really important to understand that there's a huge distinction between achieving accessibility and maintaining accessibility. So we bundle tons and tons of awesome ways for folks to leverage automation, whether that's in a browser extension, APIs, um, issue tracking, ongoing monitoring, all that kind of stuff into a software platform. Software is one component, right? And there's the people component, which is us going in and performing routine tests, persons with disabilities going in with assistive technology and doing that, providing all those reports in a visible way across all digital assets, right? But the other important part of, of the people piece is really about ongoing support. Hey, I'm a developer that's new to this and my organization has a new commitment to accessibility. We got these audit results back. We've broken out all these different tasks. And I've got this open JIRA ticket and I don't know how to resolve this. Where do I go for help? Oh, cool. EA's help team is there to support and kind of guide me through that process beyond the documentation that's already there, right? The legal piece, the whole like system of record thing that we talk about having all of this data centrally located, right? legal regulatory, whether it's conformance statements and VPATs, the accessibility statement that we talked about, even help getting help to respond to a demand letter, that legal piece and that people piece is really, really critical. You can't do it with software alone. You can't do it with people alone. It's a combination of all those things, right? But when we think about like, how does EA think about accessibility beyond that, right? Our mission, power brands to empower people. It spins out of two of our co-founders working in the healthcare and rehabilitation space where they got firsthand exposure to lots and lots of folks who often had been through like a traumatic incident, whether that's a car crash, a bike, bicycle accident, something like that. And they were exposed to how difficult it was for folks to navigate web content right, who are recently using assistive technology for the first time. And so this comes back to empathy, right? Our company started at that place. 
And for me, right, as a person who grew up with one known disability, one known unknown disability, I grew up internalizing a lot of stuff that was ableist, right? I grew up uh, you know, I had to, as a type one diabetic, you have to give yourself your own insulin. So I have to, you know, needles and shots and stuff. And there's a whole lot of stigma and things that I internalized about drug use and all that kind of thing. And, um, as somebody with, with, uh, who tested off the charts for ADHD, uh, being called flighty, being called forgetful, saying I couldn't execute all the basic stuff. It had to be complicated for Kyle to dig in, like all that. Um, that's about empathy too. And, and when, when I think about a Spiro or a Simon getting in front of our, our company and talking about our mission, we talk about legal, we talk about software, but it comes back to the people side of this, right? And yes, we have to be mindful of regulations. We have to be mindful of compliance, all that stuff. But this is about creating a more equitable, equitable digital landscape for more and more of us to interact with, right? There is awesome stuff coming up every day. We have to make it accessible for folks, right? And so like our mission, we don't want to operate on a project level because being excellent at accessibility needs programmatic support across everybody who's contributing to web content, right? If you're in contracting, if you're in content, if you're in development, if you're in UX research, whatever it is, we're here to support and you don't get that on a project. One of the things that um, uh, that attracted our team to your company was that it's um, very much like we are. It was people driven. It's relationship driven. And it, it wasn't just a potential legal fix. It was, you know, there's, um, and one of the things you talked about, and I don't know if we talked much about this yet, but the manual testing was a major thing for us. And it's the fact that there are individuals that actually have these disabilities that are testing the sites. They are testing designs. They're testing functionality. And um, we are getting real user feedback on how they experienced an issue yeah. and how we, and then how we can then resolve it in association uh, or associated with the guidelines. But it's that human interaction, that real human tester that's going through there. It's like there, you can do automated testing all day. There's tons of automated testing tools. Um, for years, we used like four different ones because every one of them caught something just a little different, you know, and um, you can't automate test everything. There's so like you can't automate a keyboard. You can't automate um, all the ARIA um, stuff. And it's one of those words. I'm sure you guys also experience this. You read it all the time, but you never say it out loud. So I don't know if that's how you say ARIA tags, ARIA labels. <laughs> I think I've heard. <laughs> but yeah. uh, But, you know, you can't you can't automate everything and with your platform being really people focused um that was a big thing for us i i definitely agree yeah certainly uh i i will second that as far as you know why we chose to partner with essential accessibility um you know getting that you know real feedback is so critical because the user experience is something unique obviously to you know people across different you know um levels 
And I, I feel like when you understand what somebody's actually encountering when they're using a, you know, a web app, when they're using like a website, that honestly, those, um, those kind of meaningful pieces of feedback can help, you know, make the user experience better really for everybody. And, uh, and, and I do, I feel like it, it, it's so critical, it, it should just make business sense to everybody. And, uh, and, and really and getting that kind of um, feedback is, is super helpful. As Colin mentioned, you know, you can use a variety of like, you know, testers, screen readers, you know, like things that, that, you know, will, uh, you know, potentially give you this kind of feedback, these testing tools. But, you know, as I think you mentioned a little bit earlier, Colin, you know, turn on the screen reader on your phone and you try to navigate a website and hear what somebody who may be actually using that for its purpose, uh, what they have to do, you know, on a website that could be really difficult. It really, it'll teach you a lesson as far as like, um, you know, what, what they might have to go through. And, uh, and, and that's not near, not near, obviously what they might have to go through, but at least it'll let you know that you could make at least a part of that experience of your, your website that much better. Yeah. And you know, that piece, right. Um, I, I get a lot of folks that tell me the diabetes must be really hard, right. And I, I'm a little bit wary of using the term empathy because I think when folks see me checking my blood sugar, giving myself insulin or something like that, it's foreign to them, which I understand. But what they're seeing in that moment and responding to is not my experience as a person with type 1 diabetes in the country, right? They don't see me at a pharmacy trying to get insulin and all of a sudden my insurance is no longer covering my prescription and I haven't gotten any notification of that. And I'll get the notification in the mail two weeks after the fact, but I need my insulin now, right? They don't know what it's like to try to ask for help when my blood sugar is extremely low and folks mistake me for being drunk, right? That being said, getting exposure to that, right? helps folks understand what some of those barriers, experiences, the things I carry with me, what that can be like. And guess what? Those, those folks can go out and vote. Those folks can raise awareness around some of the challenges with the rising cost of insulin in the United States, which has been a topic of conversation recently. In the same way that, Brent, as you're talking about, turning on a screen reader, right? It's not about feeling what it's like to be a native screen reader user day after day after day, but it's about instead of understanding what some of those barriers look like in the digital space, right? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, if I think about, honestly, like coming, ba coming back to why I chose to join EA, right? You don't get that kind of exposure consistently if there is not programmatic support, and if there is not insight and what I'll call visibility into data, into your digital content, right? I get it. Training's beneficial. You want to learn the skills, right? You want to learn how to leverage um, semantic HTML, all that kind of stuff. But, but, if you don't have real, real consistent growth and progress as an organization, a place to come to see information about your assets, 
you don't have training, you don't have the compliance, all that stuff. It's really easy to start accessibility and get to a certain point and you just slowly go back down over time, right? So as a person who sold projects before, clients are always asking me, well, what's it gonna cost to maintain this? Well, it depends. How do I get training? How do I get an accessibility statement? What kind of tools? Are all of that kind of stuff is really, really, really baked into what we offer when we talk about accessibility as a service. And it makes me excited every time I'm talking to somebody new that hasn't seen it before, hasn't experienced what that is before. And it's like, it's not just a, this isn't just an audit, right? This is a whole program, a whole journey that your teams can take together. So I just get stoked about it. That's cool. That, that's honestly, that is also a perfect segue into, um, you know, unfortunately, I think, as you kind of mentioned, the RFP process, people throw out the word accessibility, like, you know, hey, make it accessible, just do do that thing. Uh, and so as it, to some degree, has become somewhat of a buzzword, you know, um, I, I, I kind of wonder, you know, in your opinion, uh, what you feel gets missed uh, as people do toss it around like that. Yeah, I think um, specifically agencies get put in a tough place when you're asked about it like that in a contract standpoint, right? Because it's it, you have both the kind of burden of educating what it takes to get and achieve accessibility. And depending on the kind of contract you're engaging with the client, then there's the whole how you maintain it, right? So, so what gets missed when it's a buzzword, number one? It's an ongoing commitment. Doesn't just happen. Doesn't just stay compliant, stay accessible, whatever. Once you achieve it for the first time, right? It's an ongoing thing. I think the second thing that gets really tough when we're talking about compliance language is we emphasize perfection and an expectation of perfection. Nope, nope. If software development is iterative and working towards continuous integration, continuous deployment, and we wanna to continue to improve this thing over time, accessibility is also the same thing. So when an organization is coming in super, super gung-ho on compliance, 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 it's missing out on the benefits of learning and progressing and working towards more achievable goals consistently, right? It's like asking a six-round draft pick in the NFL, Tom Brady, to go out on his first game as a rookie and be performing at the same level he was when he won his most recent championship. It's not realistic, right? And yes, there are some times when you have to work towards that a little faster, but progress over perfection is something that's missed out a lot. And the last piece is, there's a lot of talk about like accessibility is everybody's job. Okay. And we say that's like buzzy to say true, but not every accessibility responsibility is somebody's job. Okay. You're not going to ask the person writing the procurement requirements that are now going to say, we need, if we're going to buy software from a company, we got to have a VPAT along with that. Whoever's writing that contract isn't responsible for front end development. Right, isn't responsible for annotating a wireframe. 
right? So delineating and decentralizing accessibility to say everybody that's involved in the content has certain responsibilities and defining those responsibilities is a major thing that gets missed. Hey, it's everybody's job. Awesome. Okay. So what do I do with that? That's great. I, because otherwise, and I feel like this, you know, there's, there's a couple of those points that stack back up to that burden where it seems more overwhelming than it should be. You know, when you either feel like every task, you know, kind of falls on your plate or you look at that audit, like, you know, compliance, 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 we got to hit this, we got to do everything. It, it does. It makes it seem daunting. And then people are less inclined to, you know, make that iterative progress that you're speaking of. And I feel like that that's a super important point. And so hopefully encouraging for people to hear that it's not about the end goal uh it is it's about learning it's about getting there it's about understanding guess what like i i use, I use this analogy a lot when i'm explaining that concept to folks that are brand new right so when i was teaching uh collegiate writing right going back to my uh, younger days and i look like i'm 12 but um it would be like expecting my freshman college level students to come in on day one and write a perfect research paper. 15 pages, MLA, MLA citations, firm thesis, supporting arguments are super valid, backed up by really good use of resources, compelling position, all that kind of stuff, voice, whatever. That's an absurd thing to think about. And guess what? The minute they left my class, they didn't just achieve like, yeah, I'm a good writer now. Guess what? They're still improving, right? Half the kids that went through that haven't written a research paper since, but I bet their sentence construction's better. I bet that they write a more professional email, right? I bet that they know how to analyze an argument that's coming at them from a, from a TV show or from a, a billboard or something like that, right? It's progress. You can't expect just like perfection right out of the gates. It's not realistic. And like, if I said that right away to my students, they wouldn't be stoked about sitting down to write that paper either. Yep. No. Absolutely. Well, I I want to say let let's let's try to end on uh you know like also a, a high note too of like you know what people can look forward to in the realm of accessibility because I certainly you know think that um there's you know a lot besides just like you know judgment and legislation and all this kind of stuff that obviously we hear about you know we want to make sure that yeah things are getting cooler and better and like yeah styling focus areas I mean we we want to we want to really make sure that you know people can take away from there's you know neat things on the horizon so you know i guess from you know definitely calling your point too uh you know what what do you kind of see as being some things that you know we're looking forward to as a company um well brent hasn't given a pun yet so i'm gonna go ahead and uh <laughs> accessibility, accessibility tools are becoming more accessible and like that's a big thing um the the improvement in the tools you know improvement in um you know the ability to do uh pipelines you know things where we're continuous integration and it's uh testing front loading and and things like that there's um visual tools the um it's just as people are becoming more educated uh, about accessibility in general it's um yeah, it's becoming more accessible. And like that's the that's the thing that that I'm really pleased with. Um, you know, as we onboard new team members, that's one of the first things that we 
we start talking about it's something during our interview process that we're talking about um remediation that's a big thing for us it's um it is a service that we offer is you know um accessibility remediation yeah it's just it, it is changing rapidly and that's one of the really cool things like when you when you're seeing our industry and the tech that's in our industry changing so quickly, new libraries coming out, new things that we can um, support with it. Like um, some great resources are uh, usability.gov. Um, some really cool stuff there. Like the government is actually coming out with really good resources. <laughs> and yeah. so uh, like I'm, I'm excited about that. Like it's because it used to be kind of difficult to, to find, you know, it's like, okay, this is the error. Well, how do I fix it? What do I do? And, you know, as Kyle mentioned previously, it's, well, now you can Google it and find 30 articles on on how to do it. Um, one of my favorite things, um, I'm, <laughs> I was always a, uh, but why? Like, okay, yeah, that's the answer, but why? And um, DeCue University, uh, they do acts. Um, their uh, pages, one of my favorite things over on, uh, it's like on the right rail, what they do is they say who is impacted by this issue and me being able to associate oh okay that's why that happened and so it's like that information it's just becoming more available and um i think as it continues to become more available as it becomes more talked about more commonplace we're not going to see these things to where we get a hopefully <laughs> where we get a site and we're just like you just need to rebuild your site it's more of a, yeah, hey, you know what? You did really good here. Why don't we tweak this? Let's tweak that. Um, you know, you did great on your colors. You've got really good user flow. Here's where you can improve, um, you know, for screen readers and different things like that. And so, um, yeah, that's what I'm excited about. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I think... There, there are two key kind of points that I want to touch on. One, one of them specifically was the technology piece, right? So I, I, don't, I won't belabor that point. Um, I think that one of the unintended consequences slash benefits of the rise in these overlay technologies, which are extremely problematic for a couple of key reasons, but what it exposed from a vendor standpoint was that agencies specifically were running into the types of challenges in supporting clients in the ways that they were equipped to and answering questions around accessibility. You start seeing these vague kind of, why is this in the contract? What does this mean? You look into it and you're like, oh, okay. So, so when, when these overlay technologies came on, they really started kind of going after small agencies because of the book clients. And it was an easy solve, right? But it wasn't actually a solution. And if you think about it from an agency's perspective, right? All of a sudden we start hearing this news a little bit about, oh, there's a lot of disability rights activists out there who are really critical of this, who are starting to see some lawsuits. And what, what's, what's my team really getting out of this, right? So I think very specifically that in our industry, if I'm thinking about it from an accessibility vendor business standpoint, 
the fact that we have more attention on small agencies, on large agencies out there and available is outstanding when you think of the amount of web and mobile technology that is built by agencies for clients, right? Everything related to the reasons folks outsource this stuff from a digital transformation standpoint. The fact that agencies now are really starting to get invested in the actual work. And to be very clear, one of the reasons I got really stoked about working with you early was I got to review your website before I, you know, had even met you all. And it was accessibility, accessibility, and you're ahead of the curve there, right? That's awesome. But you mentioned Figma, you mentioned the Stark plugins, you think about other types of technologies, uh, a three-play media, for example, who has really accurate automated transcript captioning services and a technology for groups who are producing a lot of video content. There's just so much more out there for folks in your kind of space. And I think in, in our industry, it's honestly a big frontier because if we're talking about building accessibility into the fabric of, the, of a website, a mobile app, starts at that RFP stage, right? Starts with that discussion. The other piece I think that is the most important here is coming back to like the human element. And when I look at the amount of conferences that are happening around digital accessibility, free and paid, when I look at the amount of webinars happening, when I think about an agency wanting to have a podcast like this, right? What it's ultimately saying is we want, and there is an appetite for more and more persons with disabilities to have a seat at the table, proverbially, right? So what does that mean? That means more than a year ago, more than two years ago, more than 10 years ago, folks with disabilities, their needs, their requirements, their preferences are being considered in the creation of new content. That's the most important thing, right? And like, if I think about the amount of folks out there really, really, really advocating and sometimes firmly disagreeing with each other about what's the best approach for maintaining an accessible design system, what is the best approach for leveraging automation to test core user flows versus end-to-end -end tests? Or how do we leverage all this stuff? That's all about folks with disabilities having more and more impact on the development of new assets and, and all that stuff, which is great for equity. That's the momentum we need to continue to push for, right? There's a lot to look forward to for sure. Yeah. That that's that's cool. I you know honestly I feel like you know all all of this information and all of these answers and definitely as you mentioned you know having kind of an open forum like this to be able to talk about you know these kind of things um is is hopefully helpful to you know the industry you know people you know having uh, more access to these tools is going to be great for it. So, I mean, like really, uh, I know as a company, we're, we're really looking forward to it. We're greatly invested in it. And, uh, and no matter what, uh, we a hundred percent appreciate the partnership with essential accessibility. It's been wonderful so far. You know, you've given us, you know, plenty of just, uh, 
awesome articulated feedback, you know, um, definitely uh, at the ready in case we have questions, you know, helping, uh, you know, to remediate issues and stuff that we have. Uh, and then definitely, uh, certainly for the tool uh, that, you know, we have to, to do still automated scans and stuff. That's actually been really important as well. Um, and really, and definitely the relationship that we've had with you guys in general has been, you know, awesome. So uh, I not only look forward to all the developments in the field, but certainly, uh, you know, the kind of the partnership that we have. Uh, and then, um, you know, if, if you guys have any other, you know, shout outs before we kind of wrap up here, uh, definitely, you know, feel free if there's anything else you want to put in. Um, I just want to shout out, there's, there's too many folks to name, right? But the accessibility community on Twitter and in the accessibility general Slack channel, that's a public channel. There are so many folks who have either directly or indirectly helped me grow in this space. And, um, we don't activate, um, this getting folks to the table more and more if there's not a group of folks constantly pushing the envelope, challenging businesses, demanding that seat at the table. And as someone who, who prefers to really not like go out and put my, my voice front and center a lot of times like that, right? I like the, the smaller interactions like this with a lot of different folks the conversation, all that stuff. There are so many folks who have impacted me from a, an ethical and political standpoint, but also like how we talk about the nuts and bolts of this stuff. I, I just, I think, I think it's really important to thank all of them and to say that if you follow hashtag A11Y, which is an acronym for accessibility, hashtag accessibility on Twitter, you will learn so much so fast and be pointed to resources out there that are really great. The other piece I'd say is if your organization is looking for programmatic solutions, do yourself a favor and look into what does it take to really stand up a good accessibility program. The W3C developing internal policies around accessibility, right? That is a fantastic resource to kind of get a high level overview. And of course, there's a lot more detail into what that looks like and come check out EA, right? Just come check us out, read our website. There are tons of great blogs up there. Understand what it means to really not just achieve accessibility, but to maintain it too. But um, lastly, thank you. Really happy, happy to have you. Yeah, and Colin, anything else on your side? Uh, um, you know, I've just kind of an encouragement for developers. Um, one of the things I'd really, you know, recommend is a lot of the resources uh, Kyle said that's out there. You know, um, if you are interested in getting started with accessibility, maybe you've been doing it for a little bit, contribute to open source projects. Um, there are so many things that are out there as open source projects um, that just like, you know, you. Uh, there's a great thing at like all things open. They talk about like, you don't have to be a developer to contribute. You can contribute docs, you can contribute, you know, just writing graphics, uh, things like that. But, you know, as developers, we can contribute to accessibility problems. And those can be really, really small problems. You know, maybe somebody's using a table on their page and they didn't give it a table header, had a table header. You know, it's like, 
those are things that um, you know we can contribute piece by piece, and then you know as the developers of those projects and leaders of those projects see these accessibility things come in, you're giving them reasons why this, and now you're teaching with your merge requests and your pull requests. So um, it's just an encouragement to get out there in the, uh, you know, uh, just in the space and teach using code. Yeah, awesome. Well, um, I really appreciate you both for being here and uh, and doing the the podcast today. Uh, this has been a ton of amazing information. So definitely, thanks to you to you both. Thanks, Colin, my business partner. I will definitely be talking with you probably pretty soon here. <laughs> but also, Kyle, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being on too. Yeah, Brent, Colin, thank you so much. Thanks for the rest of the the Matchbox team who will be supporting putting up the podcast and the. Uh, the video here. And yeah, it's been great from our end too. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been great to catch up again, Cal. Yeah, likewise. Likewise. Let's go make an accessible internet together. All right. Absolutely. Awesome. Great. Well, this has been another episode of Mix and Matchbox. Uh, We'll be back again with more content. Thanks.